facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, a fantastic Friday to you. Welcome to the program, 888-914-914. 9149 is a toll free line to call to talk to me for free. 888 914 9149. It's a toll free line for the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. You can also email the program, Kale, C A L E, at relevantradio.com and follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C A L E, Clark with an E. It is the 14th of April. It is Friday in the octave of Easter, which is one great big Easter day for eight days. Just love it. And of course, Divine Mercy Sunday is coming up this weekend. Well, a lot of you guys, yesterday, you guys scooped me on something, and I have to give you all credit for this. A number of you called in to alert me to something that you knew I was going to get really excited about. You knew I was going to geek out about this. You guys said, hey, Kale, have you heard about the new manuscript discovery? That's right. A Syriac manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew, at least part of it. I said, no, I hadn't heard of this discovery. And a couple of you guys were kind enough to pop me an email with links to articles about it. I want to thank Jacob. I want to thank Patrick. Thank you guys very much in particular. So I thought, I need to find out more about this. And there's no better person for me to talk to about this than a great friend of the program, the author of a book on the manuscripts called Jesus and the Manuscripts. And no exaggeration, he's also written or edited about 100 other books. Dr. Craig Evans is joining me on the line, biblical scholar extraordinaire from his home in the Houston area. He is professor of Christian origins at Houston Christian University. Dr. Evans, happy Easter. Thanks for taking the time today. How are you? I'm fine, Cale. Thank you very much. Happy to talk with you about this recent manuscript find. Yeah, yeah, and lots of other fun stuff we're going to talk about as well. So in layman's terms, can you can you explain to us exactly what was found, and is it a big deal? Well, any manuscript that we didn't know about before, or a manuscript we knew about but we didn't know that there was an underlying text, and then we discover it, yeah, that's a big deal. And uh, uh, what we have is a text It's fairly old. I think it's exaggerated when they say it's 1,700 years mm-hmm. old, my mm-hmm. guess probably more like 1600, but in any case, whatever. Um, it's called <laughs> a palimpsest. A palimpsest. Okay, first, first of all, you need painful. to learn how to spell it. <laughs> I, I think I had but, a palimpsest before. It really hurt. Um, and you it, went is, to the it, doctor? It's... Well, that's good. Uh, <laughs> a palimpsest, it's two Greek words, palin, which means uh, again, uh, or again, as we might say in Canada, and then obsessed, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a P-S word, from mm. the verb is psao, and it means to rub. And so, okay. anyway, a lot of people might not know this, but when a manuscript was prepared for writing, it didn't matter if it was papyrus or if it was parchment, which is a stretched leather, it would then be mm. rubbed, and uh, and that would make then uh, the, the paper, we'd call it paper, but either the papyrus or the, or the leather, it would receive the ink from the pen better. And so you'd write on it, and then you, it would look really good. If you didn't rub it, then then the ink might not stick very well, it'd be uneven, and so on. Well, paper was so expensive yeah. that uh, instead of just throwing it away, if you had some old manuscript, you might want to rewrite it, and so you rub it again. 
And that's what that yep. word palimpsest uh-huh. means. And that's what we're talking about. It's a copy okay. of Matthew, and the two languages involved are Syriac and Latin. And so it was rubbed again and then overwritten. And, uh, and in fact, actually, if you, you find the page, and I've looked at it online, you turn it sideways, and the Syriac now is going properly from, from right to left. You turn it back the way it is, and then the Latin looks correct. And it's because of ultraviolet, and sometimes okay. we do other types of spectral imaging, and you can see hidden text that you can just barely mm. see with the naked eye, and then you can see it so well with the ultraviolet, you can actually can read it. I love that. And, and like I said yesterday on the show, people didn't have Microsoft Word back then. They didn't have Google Docs. There wasn't an unlimited supply of electronic paper to write on. Papyrus is hard to come by. It got reused time and time again. It was also quite durable. I want, to, I want you to speak to this for a second. We've talked about the work of James Houston before and what he found out about how long some of these manuscripts lasted for. I think it really shocks people to hear this. You talk about it in your book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Can you just mention it really quickly? Oh, yeah, sure. And that was something that the great uh, uh, British scholar, uh, T.C. Skeet, he, he just he, he found it frustrating. He'd write an article, I think it was, he, lived, he was a publishing scholar on into his 90s. Anyway, back when he was a, a mere youth at 65 or something like that, he wrote an article <laughs> and reminded scholars, look, quit referring to papyrus as a fragile medium. It's far more durable than, you know, you find any book, take any book down the shelf and look at the pages. Hey, papyrus is a whole lot tougher than that. Hmm. And so this papyrus, as you know full well, that we've excavated in from Egypt, the dry sands of Egypt, this is stuff thrown out in the trash. And it's yeah. been there for 2,000 years, some of it longer than that. And we, we dig it out of the sand, we dig it out of the trash, and we can still read it. Uh, you know, if it wasn't 20 feet deep where it got wet and soggy, if it's near the surface, the first six, seven, eight feet of the sand, ah, it's perfectly legible. Mm-hmm. We have found papyrus in caves, inside of mummies, uh, in burial tombs, and so on. And the papyrus is durable, perfectly readable. And the same with the animal skins. As long as it's protected from the elements and kept dry mm-hmm. and not in direct sunlight too much, papyrus lasts a long time. That's why we can talk about books that are 1,800 years old and stuff like that. Wow. And so the idea that uh, you know the originals were written out on papyrus, the autographs, the original biblical books, and then 20 years later they've all fallen to pieces, that's just the stuff of nonsense. We have good reason to believe that uh, the autographs were in circulation 100 years, 200 years, maybe even longer. And you referred to George Houston of University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, and and he's discovered that with secular books. Uh, The ancient people valued books. They didn't throw them away. They'd keep them for hundreds of years. And archaeology shows this. Uh, Mount Vesuvius, where it buried uh, Herculaneum and Pompeii, we have found book rolls. We obviously know when they weren't used anymore, A.D. 79. And then we find out by studying the style of writing, they were two, three hundred years old when Mount Vesuvius erupted. So that just goes to show you there's nothing strange that the Christian books were a few centuries old. That's what the pagans were doing, too, with with writings that they valued. So this sheds a lot of light. I think it answers a, a question as how did the biblical text, you know, we didn't have the digital age, we didn't have online stuff, 
There weren't printed Bibles in mm-hmm. the way it is now, mass-produced. So how did the Greek text of the New Testament or the Hebrew text of the Old Testament remain so stable? Well, it's because the originals remained a long time, and so copies were made of the originals again and again and again. And, of course, the, the Holy Scripture was read in church and in synagogue, and people would hear it read, the same text. So the idea of monkeying around with the text, changing it, <laughs> taking something away, you could never get away with that. It'd be mm. impossible to do it. My guest is Dr. Craig Evans. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question about the Bible or manuscripts? Give us a call, 888 I'm sure the good doctor will take your question. But you mentioned Dr. George Houston at North Carolina. And I want to just follow up on this for a second, because another famous or infamous or notorious, however you want to put it, scholar, who's actually quite an accomplished scholar, let's, I mean, all kidding aside, Dr. Bart Ehrman. He is often tried, and you debated him in the past, and people can find these debates on YouTube about the accuracy of the biblical manuscripts. Uh, he's written books like Forge that kind of want to call into question. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the manuscripts that you have now. How does this other scholar from North Carolina, how does he help to counter Bart Ehrman's claims? And, and, and what does this have to do with a guy named Tertullian, who wrote something called The Prescription Against the Heretics, which sounds like something you'd want to get from a drugstore. But... Yeah, it's a pretty good prescription, or it's an <laughs> antidote, really. Yeah. Well, you know, what some of the, what some of the heretics were doing, what they would misquote uh, Paul's letters in this particular part, and they'd say, oh, Paul teaches this and that, and so on, and according to our manuscripts, it reads this way. And so he says, look, we could go back and forth, you know, talking about, well, yours says this, mine says that. What you ought to do is see the originals. And then he lists uh, seven of Paul's letters and where they are. And by the way, then in another place, he refers to Galatians. So you add it all up, there are eight of Paul's letters. That's most of them. And the letters he happens to mention, I think seven of the eight, all scholars agree that Paul wrote them. I think Paul wrote them all, but everybody agrees that the seven that he actually mentioned Paul wrote. There's not even disputed. And he says, you can see the originals. So you don't have to take my word for it. Go look at the originals. Now, Tertullian is saying this in the year 190, give or take. And so Paul's letters would be anywhere from 125 to 135 years old, the originals. And he's saying the originals are still there. So go, go, go to Rome, see Romans. Go to Corinth, see First and Second Corinthians. Go to Ephesus and see Ephesians. And that's pretty compelling evidence. If, yeah. he's just, if that's a puff piece, he's exposed. And by the way, a hundred years later, 290, uh, Bishop Peter in Alexandria, Egypt, he's not, he's not doing an apologetic piece. He's writing a devotional on Passover week, Passion Week. Hmm. And he says, now, the best manuscripts read this way, and he's making a text-critical point. And he says, that's the way it reads in the original that the Apostle John wrote. He's talking about the Gospel of John, which is in Ephesus where the, uh, the, the wow. pious uh, show reverence for it. Well, that means the Gospel of John is 200 years old. The autograph is still in Ephesus. And he's not trying to do a, uh, you know, an apologetic piece. He's just saying, look, I know I've got the correct reading of what hour of the day our Lord died on the cross. Mm. That's his whole point. And he says, if you don't believe me, you can look at the original. That's you know? amazing. And John is 200 years old. Well, 
we now know that autographs, which were especially treasured, and other old copies were in circulation in Rome and in other cities anywhere for 200 to 300 years. So that's pretty significant. And when I debated Bart Ehrman, he didn't know any of these things. And, really? and what's funny, George Houston is his colleague. George Houston. Yeah, that's right. He's retired now. He teaches classics. He's at the same university. I, I know. UNC that, uh, Chapel Hill. That's what makes it so so astounding. And I, I just think this is mind-blowing evidence because, again, in the popular mind, if you were to ask the average man or woman on the street, how long do, do you think the papyrus manuscripts, the originals, and, and by the way, this term, the autographs, that refers to the original copy, let's say, of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And by the way, he probably made at least two original copies, one to keep and one to send to Rome or wherever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and that's, and Paul, of course, he used to scribe, but, but a lot of people would say, well, these things probably lasted 20, 25 years. No, no, no. The, these things could last for hundreds of years, as you explained. And so this idea that, hey, if anybody came up with a, with a letter allegedly from Paul, or, hey, I've got a copy of Romans, it's a little bit different from yours. Well, well, let's let's compare it to the actual letter yeah. that the Church of Rome got. It's under a glass case in the Church at Rome, as it were. It's not you know, quite like that, but I imagine they kept it with great diligence and care. And, and, and there's no way that these, these alleged corruptions of the Bible could have happened, right? I mean... Well, uh, you know, Cale, of course you're correct. And there's another thing that uh, uh, Bart Ehrman and some of these uh, hyper-skeptics just fail to get, and that is the, the scribes that made these copies, the majority of them, the evidence is there, were professional scribes. They weren't necessarily Christians. They're pagans. Mm. And mm -hmm. so here's this guy, pagan. Maybe he worships Isis or something, <laughs> and he lives in Egypt, and mm -hmm. someone gives him a copy of Mark and says, would you make a copy of that? It's the year 89. Well, he has no motivation to change it. He's a professional scribe. He's made copies of Plato, copies of Aristotle, copies of who knows what all, and here's, he doesn't even know what it is. And by the way, if he does make a mistake, it's because he probably doesn't fully understand what he's copying. So whatever mistake he makes, it's just his eye slipping. He doesn't change it. He doesn't think, oh, I need to alter the Christology here. I need to, you know, mm -hmm. make the Christology yeah. higher or lower. Yeah. He, he has no motivation to do that. He, he's not even sure what it is he's copying. He just he knows he's paid for making an accurate copy, and that's what he does. He has no skin in the game. Now, what about, Kale? what about, okay, what you say, okay, most of the copies are made by pagans who don't have a dog in the fight, but there are some Christian copyists, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. So a, a Christian copyist, say, making a copy of Matthew in the year 100, well, what change is he going to make? He doesn't even know Matthew's going to be in the Bible. Mm. There isn't any settled on New Testament that early. So what change? He's, he's going to look at Matthew and say, oh, this someday is going to be in the Bible. Here's my chance to write doctrine. Yeah. He's not going to do that. That's anachronistic. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, how, what change? How does he know Nicaea hasn't been convened yet? That takes place in 325. So he doesn't really know what the official doctrine is of Christ is going to be, or soteriology, or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he doesn't know which books to change, how to change them. This whole thing becomes silly. And most of the scribes weren't Christians anyway, so they don't have any motive to make changes. So this whole thing is really a modern joke that modern skeptics have invented 
it, it's the objections are unhistorical, unnuanced, and out of context. Yeah, I love that. And, and Orthodox Christians can oh, just breathe a sigh of relief. You don't need to worry about that stuff. <laughs> oh, you know, we've got a lot of copies. If somebody monkeyed with the text, we would know it, because we have so many copies from so many different places, and not just in the original Greek, Latin, Coptic, and other languages. Nobody could monkey with the text, uh, say, uh, in, in the late first century or in the second century, and get away with it it would leave ripples in the manuscript tradition. It would be obvious. And by the way, a guy who's not known as a conservative uh, Christian scholar at all, Eldon Epp, he's 90 years old now, by the mm-hmm. way, years ago, Eldon commented, now that we have like almost, you know, back when he was saying this about 100 papyri, the number now is up to 141, I think. Anyway, he said, there are no surprises, which was mm. really interesting. That is interesting. So in other words, to put that in context, yeah, we have the whole New Testament when you have all these manuscripts. We've got the entire text once you get well into the 3rd century. Well, what about going further back to the early 3rd century into the 2nd century? These real early ones, do they give us any surprises? Like, oh my gosh, look how the text reads here in Romans 5. Or, holy smokes, look how it reads in John 10. (laughs) No surprises. The Mm. texts still read the same way. So, in other words, as we found, we're up to 141 papyri, I think, now, and uh, and other medieval manuscripts that Dan Wallace and others have found yeah. in monasteries. Yeah. As the number keeps increasing, we realize it's still the same text. There aren't any surprises. So this whole idea that a bunch of monks got together, or a couple of bishops got together, and they're <laughs> tampering with the text in the second century to make sure that it becomes orthodox— is really a lot of poppycock. Yeah, it does sell books, though, unfortunately, and uh, we, we've had we've <laughs> yeah. had to. But it gives us a lot of stuff to talk about. That's for sure. Uh, you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. If you have a question for Dr. Craig Evans, so just real quick before we take our break, getting back to this Syriac text snippet from Matthew that they found that might be seventeen hundred years old. You think it's probably sixteen hundred, whatever. Question is, um, is there anything that we can learn from this? Is this a major find at all? Let, answer that first, then i got a follow-up question on that. But Well, no, it really isn't. It, it does have one particular reading where when the disciples are picking grain, they rub the grain in their hands. Yeah. But we, all, we have that reading in other manuscripts, so there, there's no bombshell here. Yeah, well, that's kind of poetic, though. You know, rubbing the rubbing the papyrus. You can write on it again. Rubbing the rubbing the <laughs> grains in your hand. It all it all is, it's all very serendipitous. But but it, just just real quickly, the, the fact that it's in Syriac, what what can we like? What is is there any anything we can learn from the fact that there there are early translations in the Syriac language? Is that of anything? What can this tell us about early the early church? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the Syriac language. Uh, is a cousin to Aramaic. It's really what Aramaic turns into as you go from the first century uh, A.D. into the second and third centuries. And Syrian Christianity is very important and unfortunately not as well understood in the West. Mm. And, and uh, you know, Rome uh, um, and Constantinople, these became the powerhouse centers for Christendom and on into Europe. And uh, then, you know, the Syrian contribution 
the Syriac contribution, I think, was underrated, and that's too bad. And then you have the Islamic conquest of the Middle East, and so it then becomes broken off uh, from from the Western Church, which is really too bad, isolated. And so uh, we scholars of the West, we study Latin and Greek and Hebrew, and we don't all study Syriac. I was fortunate I had the ch- chance to study Aramaic and Syriac, mm. But that tradition is very important. And, and so what's important about this text is that it's actually on the rel- relatively early as a Syriac text. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe it is 1,700 years old, which would uh, make, make the Syriac text date to about mm-hmm. 300 or something like that, which is uh, pretty early. But the Syrian Gospels, the Syri- Syriac text is very important witness and the thing is, Kale, what language did Jesus and his disciples speak? They spoke Aramaic. Right, right. And, and Justin Martyr, a, a very important church father of the, mid, um, uh, of the mid-second century, his, his native tongue was Aramaic. And so these Aramaic speakers are the forerunners to the Syriac tradition. Uh, the Syriac is just Aramaic a little further to the east. And so it's a very important uh, tradition, and I hope we find more manuscripts like this. Hmm. And uh, and there is there is a renewed interest among scholars to look at the Syriac. This is a, a, a the eastern wing of the church that needs to be better understood. Yeah, I, I, and and we do need to understand that better. I appreciate that extra insight, Doctor Evans. Well, as you mentioned, sometimes manuscripts are found in the trash, and you were kind of taken out the trash at your place. You found an interesting document in your home had something to do with a guy I talk about a lot, a former Catholic priest who's written a lot of uh, very interesting things. Uh, Jesus <laughs> Jesus was never buried, much less resurrected. Uh, his body was eaten by wild dogs, unceremoniously thrown down by the cross. I'm talking about John Dominic Crossan. You faced off against him many times in debates. So we're going to talk about what you found in your home, what he wrote what it has to do with Jesus, if anything, right after this break. Plus, plus, Dr. Evans also had a run-in with Hercules and the Incredible Hulk. I'll explain much more. You're going to want to hang on. Call in right now, 888-914-9149. Kale Clark Show, only right here on Relevant Radio. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is the toll-free number to call. Let's talk to my guest today, Dr. Craig Evans, 888-914-9149. Biblical scholar, extraordinaire, author or editor of more than 100 books, many, many articles, hundreds of articles, the author of Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels, among other great books. And, and in that book, he, he, he mentions a certain guy. And Dr. Evans, uh, as my former professor, one of the things I really, really look forward uh, to getting in my inbox every once in a while, you'll send out these academic alerts to some of your former students. And Easter time, you sent me one along with the other guys, and, and I was really... Really looking forward to opening it up, and I was not disappointed. You see, 
on, on, on this show and also on the other show that I host on Relevant Radio called The Faith Explained, I've been going through evidence this week for the resurrection, some of the theories that attempt to debunk the resurrection. And, and even on Good Friday, I, I talked about this. One of the more wild theories out there surrounding the death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus is from the former Catholic priest and biblical scholar, well-known biblical scholar, John Dominic Crossan. And you have crossed paths with Crossan and crossed swords with him, really, as, as well, during debates, Dr. Evans. And he has this famous theory called the dogs beneath the cross. He alleges that Jesus never was resurrected. He never got a proper burial. His, his body was unceremoniously taken down from the cross, thrown into a common grave, was then mauled and eaten by wild dogs. <laughs> okay, we can, we can get into that. And, I, and I, I hope I did a good job of debunking that, that crazy theory. And maybe you could speak to it briefly, Dr. Owens. But, that, but you also found something else related to him as you're kind of cleaning out some old paperwork in your home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, just to remind our listeners, John Dominic Crossan, along with another very uh, liberal Protestant scholar named Robert Funk, founded, co-founded the Jesus Seminar in 1985. And one of the things that uh, the Jesus Seminar did was produce a journal called Forum. And so the very first issue, I have, oh, half a dozen of the issues. And, and as you were saying, I was culling some stuff, clearing out some stuff. So I have a little more room on my shelf. And there was the very first issue of Forum. Now, but right now I'm holding it in my hand. And I thought, oh, I wonder what's in this. And I couldn't believe it. Here was a little article, autobiographical by John hmm. Dominic Crossan. And there's a picture of him. I'm, I'm looking at it right now when he was wow. probably 25 years old. Wow. And I'm struck how he looks like Peter Sellers. <laughs> I mean, we could have had the, the Irish equivalent of Jacques Clouseau. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I think he missed his calling. But in any case, he became not a, uh, a detective of crime, <laughs> but a detective of literature. And what I found so interesting was what I read in the very first paragraph. And just to prepare our readers for this, keep in mind the Jesus Seminar was yeah. founded on the assumption that most of what Jesus taught was forgotten. And oh, not very much was remembered. Hmm. And so when the Gospels were written 30 or 40 years after his public ministry concluded, people had to make stuff up and say, well, if <laughs> Jesus were here, this is what he would probably say. Well, what do we do about this? Or what do we do about that? Somebody asked, well, if Jesus was here, this is probably what he would say. So the Jesus Seminar concluded that about 80% of what's written mm. in the Gospels really doesn't go back to Jesus, because who could really remember all that? Okay? That's the backdrop. Well, what do I read the first paragraph? Crossan is saying, when I was 10 years old, my dad would walk me to school, and it was a long walk. And mm -hmm. what we would do to pass the time as we walk, he would read to me poetry, and I would memorize it. And huh. he said, I, I memorized R Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, Gunga Den. So I thought, really? oh, that's interesting. I looked it up. It's 89 lines, 548 words. 
And on the walk to school, it might have taken, you know, a half hour or something. He memorized it. 89 lines. He's 10 years old. It's 548 words. One walk to school. And then he goes on to say, and I still remember it 40 years later. Wow. And I thought, wow, he's a genius. (laughs) He is saying that he, as a 10-year-old boy, could do something that the disciples of Jesus could not do. Hmm. That he could memorize these poems. And the disciples of Jesus, of course, could not memorize the teaching of Jesus and certainly couldn't remember it 30 or 40 years later. But Crossan can. I thought, that's really amazing. (laughs) And that's why I sent that email to you, Cale, and, and my other former graduate students, I thought this was really astonishing. So it's too bad that Jesus didn't appoint Dom. I mean, then then the Gospels would be 100% of, of the material would go back to Jesus, and not just 20%. Well, so there the, you go. Uh, Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, the irony is unbelievable because now, now, if 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 our listeners don't remember the Jesus Seminar, this was front page news back in the day. It was pretty much laughed at in Europe in the in the academy, but 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 in North America, this was front page news. I remember they were being on the cover of Newsweek magazine and. And they had this book called The Five Gospels. Uh, can you explain what that is? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those four Gospels we all have heard about. The other one is called Thomas. The Gospel fifth Thomas. Gospel is Thomas. By the way, a lot of people don't know it, but there was a fragment of a Gospel found in a coffin in North Africa, and it was called the Gospel of Peter. Peter had nothing mm. to do with it. And yep. it used to be called the fifth gospel, but sorry, Peter, he's been pushed aside, and <laughs> doubting Thomas has taken his place. And and of course, the Jesus seminar was utterly, utterly fascinated with the decontextualized, non-Jewish, uh, talking head Jesus that's found in the Gospel of Thomas. Now, most scholars now date it to the second half of the second century. And so Thomas is fading from the scene. But, oh, the Jesus Seminar, ooh, this is neat. And so they would cast beads. Yeah, they would cast pearls before swine. Well, something <laughs> like that. They cast curl, colored beads into a basket. If you thought Jesus said it, it was red. If you thought, well, it's close, not exactly that it's pink. If you had a lot of doubts, it's gray. And if you're certain that Jesus did not say it, it's black. So they'd throw their beads into the basket, and they had numeric value. They'd calculate it, and that's where they came up with only 18% is either red, almost nothing red, or pink. Everything else is gray and black. So that's how they did their calculations. And Thomas had more pink in it than the Gospel of John. Well, they should have turned red that? with they should have turned red with embarrassment maybe and it, it, that obviously has to <laughs> <laughs> that obviously has to do with the quote unquote red letter bible editions uh that, that have the yep, words of right. Jesus yeah in red ink if you will and and, and that's uh, we just want to break it's what's iron what's ironic about the 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 note that you found from John Dominic Crossan is that this was something this was in in a journal or some sort of a paper having to do with the Jesus seminar, right? Which doubts, yeah, as you said, it, yeah, they, yeah, it's they, a, you know, it's it's autobiographic, you know, but it's it's his story and it's in a journal that was published by the Jesus seminar. The very guys 
who don't think the uh, most of the gospel material goes back to Jesus. This was published in 1985, the very year the Jesus Seminar was launched. And so yeah, there I, you have it. And I thought, don't, doesn't anyone see the irony here? Yeah, exactly. He is saying, as a 10-year-old boy, I could memorize 89 lines of this poem. Now remember, the disciples of Jesus walked around with Jesus for two, a couple of years. And they heard, they didn't just hear Gunga Den read once. They heard the parable of the sower, <laughs> the parable of the wicked vineyard tenants, the parable of, you know, the, the sheep or the wheat and the tares, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, et cetera, et cetera. They heard these parables many times. Yep. It wasn't just one walk to school. Well, I learned that one. They were with him many times. And then, by the way, they didn't just quit and go into another line of work, and then 20, 30, 40 years later, hey, I wonder what I can still remember from the teacher. <laughs> they repeated everything he said over and over again for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that, that well, is... I'll tell you, that, that keeps your memory pretty sharp. <laughs> it, it sure does. I, I don't think Jesus was the kind of guy that you could easily forget uh, in his teaching. But you're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 talking with biblical scholar Dr. Craig Evans. If you have a question for Dr. Evans, 888-914-9149. I find this personally a very, very fascinating field of study, and I've taken courses with you. you you've you talked about this. I, I want to just develop this for a second because I remember years ago, you and several other scholars collaborated on a book kind of trying to answer some of the questions posed by the Jesus Seminar. And I remember, I, I believe if memory serves me correctly, it was uh, Dr. Daryl Bach who wrote an article called Live, Jive, or Memorex. Now, if you guys remember Memorex cassette tapes, they had a famous ad where this guy's sitting on a couch and he's being blown away by his speakers. He's got a cassette tape. He's got some recorded music. And the idea is, was it live or was it Memorex? In other words, the Memorex tape is the exact recording of what was said. So when it comes to the Gospels and we read the words of Jesus, is it Memorex? In other words, is it word for word the actual words of Jesus, the ipsissima verba of Jesus in Latin, that's the term. Or, or is it something else? Is it jive? Is it totally made up, as the Jesus Seminar would suggest for a lot of this stuff? Or, or was, it, was it something else? Was it live? And, and if so, can you explain what that might be, Dr. Evans? Well, okay, here's what you do. Let's suppose you have heard the parable of the banquet where a, a king or a wealthy man or somebody, whether it's to do with his son getting married, and he sends out invitations to people to come to uh, the feast and celebrate the, the wedding. And you hear that parable and variations of it a hundred times in a hundred different villages over the course of a two-year ministry. You hear your, your master tell it and tell it and tell it again, but with variations. And then you choose to write it down. What are you going to what, what are you going to do in your gospel? Write it down fifty times. You write it down once, and the one time you write it might not be exactly the way Jesus told it one time, but it's true to the dozens of times he told it. And that's why you do get some variation because you have multiple tellings, mm -hmm. multiple teachings. And so it's clustered and edited and presented. So it's not exactly Memorex, but it isn't Jive either. It is what Jesus taught, yeah. and the disciples have been trained to be smart, not parrots. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Do you understand everything I said? He asked the disciples. Yes, 
they say, good. Because then you're like the scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven who can open up the thesaurus, that's the literal Greek word, the treasure box, and reach inside and pull out new stuff and old stuff. And we think what he means is you can take what I've taught and you can adapt it. Because for one thing, he's talking to them in Aramaic. They wrote the Gospels in Greek. And so anytime you go from one language to another, there is some paraphrasing and some interpreting. So a disciple is somebody who doesn't just repeat word for word what the teacher said. He understands what he taught. He understands the meaning of it. And he understands it well enough that he can adapt it in different cultural and linguistic settings. And that's exactly what you see in the Gospels. That's why we have three synoptics. They cover essentially the same ground, but not exactly the same way. Each Gospel writer has a perspective, has a different purpose. This is why he's writing, same Jesus, but four Gospels. And that's how he trained them. And and I think we have to resist the naive fundamentalist response is to imagine that uh, everything is said is word for word. Well, that's not Mm -hmm. possible. If it was word for word, it would be tremendously long, and it would be in Aramaic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, That's a great point. We already have a translation issue. It's not the exact words of Jesus anyways. He's probably speaking and teaching in Aramaic in most cases, and that's being translated into Greek in the New Testament. And, and, and as the Gospels say, he kept the crowd spellbound for hours. Well, you can you can read a Gospel very, very quickly. There's obviously some condensing going on here, but it doesn't mean that the message is, is being changed. And, and, and I remember you used to teach us this all the time, that if, if the apostles, if the disciples were parrots, you know, just running everything back like a, like, a, like a robot, word for word, they would be considered to be very, very bad rabbinical students of the Master, wouldn't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, anybody back then, it's less true now, but back then the memories were pretty sharp. It was very much an oral culture. And so to hear someone speak and then simply repeat it, that proves nothing. It just shows, well, yeah. your memory works. And we, and by the way, we know what we're talking about. We're not guessing because we have educational handbooks yeah. from antiquity, and they talk about how you teach students and how they first memorize so they can repeat mm-hmm. what they heard then they prove that they know what they're doing by how they edit the material. They can expand it, they can uh, abridge it, they can introduce it differently, they can take units of tradition and string them together like pearls. And that's Mm. why the Synoptic Gospels especially, but also John to some extent, you see it, they look like strings of pearls. Mm. And that's what they are. These little pearls have been strung together, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't necessarily string them always in the same order, They don't always lump them together and arrange them quite the same way. And they don't always make exactly the same point. But yet they're true to the teaching of Jesus. They're true to his message, what he was trying to say. They're just nuanced, and they're able to apply it in a variety of settings. Yeah, and it's it's probably quite likely Jesus himself did that. You know, if he didn't have much time, he'd kind of give an elevator pitch of the message of the kingdom of God. He could also expand it. You look at... The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Some people think it's the, that Luke is somehow abbreviating or changing. Well, it might have been two different messages at di- in different places, but the message is always the same wherever he goes, wherever he's traveling. He's not going to change it every time he steps into a different town. So, so this well, this is really uh, really. Kale, let me interrupt. You're absolutely right. And in, in my Jesus the Manuscripts book, I make that point in one of the chapters 
that the so-called discrepancies, the variances, the varieties that we encounter in the Gospels, they started with Jesus himself. And so the idea that on one occasion he goes up on the side of a hill and delivers the Sermon on the Mount, that's naive. And In fact, how long does it take to read the Sermon on the Mount? Fifteen minutes? Mm-hmm. Ten, twelve minutes? Yeah. Do you think Jesus spoke for twelve minutes and said, okay, that's it, folks, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, let's go home. I mean, you know, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is interesting because that's after an entire day and the sun is going down and Jesus is concerned about the people going home, and some of them have walked for miles, going home at the end of day and very hungry, and he wants them to be fed before they go. That is very realistic. They've been together for an entire day. Well, there's no saying, there's no discourse, there's nothing in the Gospels that takes longer than just minutes to read. Even the, even the long discourses in John, some of them might be 35, 40 verses long. They only take minutes, a few minutes to read. So these are distillations of Je- Jesus' mm-hmm. teaching, and according, you know, as he instructed his disciples to do it. And so they have heard him teach again and again and again, repeating material, the same parables, variations of the parables in a variety of settings, and then they have pulled it together. Actually, the ancient Greeks would call it epitome. They have epitomized his teaching, Mm. put it together, presented it, Matthew clearly speaking to a skeptical synagogue, Mark speaking to the Roman Empire and the cult of the emperor, Luke speaking to Gentiles who wonder if they have any place in what appears to be Israel's story and Israel's Messiah, and John speaking to a different kind of a group, more philosophically, wisdom-oriented, and claiming that Jesus is the very incarnate Word of God himself. And so the four Gospel writers uh, have different agenda, they have uh, different strategies and purposes, and then they edit and present the material, I would argue, authentically, true to what Jesus taught, but to insist on it being word for word as though we could walk around with a tape recorder and find those 35 verses in you know John 10 exactly that way, that is to misunderstand how Jesus taught and how it all came together. Uh, very well said, Dr. Evans. We've got to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. I see you there, Sean. Frank, if you're on the line, please stay there. We'll be right back after this. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to The Kale Clark Show. On this Friday, my guest is Dr. Craig Evans, 888-914-9149, to call and talk to one of the most highly regarded biblical scholars in the world. Not often you get a chance to call in and have a chat like that, 888-914-9149, and Let's go to the phones right now, Dr. Evans. We've got a call here from your home state of California. We've got Sean from Santa Clarita, Santa Clarita California calling in. Hi, Sean. Hi there. I'm calling about um, a book called The Complete Gospels that was edited by Robert Funk uh, under the auspices of the Jesus Seminar. Yeah. Dr. Evans, <laughs> did you find the canonical Gospels um, translated correctly, more correctly perhaps than... Um, in our regular Bibles? Well, yeah, that's the translation of the canonical Gospels, uh, 
involving the Jesus Seminar is not a big deal. Uh, some of their works, they use the RSV, uh, for example. So there is nothing shocking or strange in the world of the Jesus Seminar, Bob Funk, Dom Crossan, and so on, when it comes to the translation of either the canonical Gospels or the ones that are extra-canonical. I do have the complete uh, Bible, and by that, when they say complete, they're, it's a little bit audacious. Complete <laughs> meaning they're including extra-canonical writings. I might add they one of the members of the Jesus Seminar edited a book called A New New Testament and added some Gnostic works, added the Gospel of Thomas, right at the front, too, by the way, claiming that it's the oldest of the Gospels, blah, blah, blah. And I have done a review of it, and I'm not impressed in the least. And what I might add on that, the reason the the canon should not be expanded with this kind of material, for goodness sakes, uh, the early church fathers, they, they were smart guys. They read these writings. We still have a lot of them. We can read them now. Uh, I wouldn't for one second recommend adding a Gnostic gospel to the New Testament or the esoteric gospel of Thomas, which is an interesting document. I wouldn't recommend adding it to the New Testament. The Gnostic gospels believe in two gods, not one. They believe the God that created this world is evil. And they're referring to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the patriarchs, the Father of our Lord. They're I mean, this kind of material has no place in canonical scripture, Old Testament and New. And so this kind of stuff is just silly. But the complete Gospels book that uh, our caller has referred to, there's no issue with translation. That's not Mm. the thing. Yeah, thanks for that call, Sean. Really appreciate it. that and you clarifying that. And yeah, in your commentary on, on the Gospel of Mark, um, part two and part one is coming out, the Word Biblical Commentary series, very highly regarded. I remember you had a you had a little, a little preface there about the Gospel of Thomas, and you show really clearly how, how it, it is derivative of the Gospels of the New Testament. It flat out copies stuff from uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, and... Um, yeah, so it's not early. It, it has nothing to t- teach us about the historical Jesus, for sure. Let's go now to Frank in Florham Park, New Jersey. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, wow, Dr. Evans and Kale together. This is great. Uh, my question, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my question is, um, when Jesus was tempted by uh, Satan, the devil, in the number of uh, three instances, or when Jesus was talking to Pilate, there was nobody else there taking that stuff down. How do we get that in the scriptures? Hmm. Okay. Happy to speak to that, Frank. Thank you for your question. Well, first of all, uh, as far as the temptations go, uh, this had to be uh, the source is Jesus himself. And, and by the way, we have evidence for that, because in uh, Luke chapter 10, the disciples come back from their uh, mission and say, Lord, uh, even the spirits uh, obeyed us, and all these exciting things. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Mm -hmm. And this was an experience that Jesus himself had, a visionary experience, and he shares it with his disciples. Well, seeing Satan fall from heaven is about the same thing as seeing Satan in the wilderness trying to tempt him. So if we are guided by this uh, teaching, it is unique to Luke, but if we're guided by what we read in Luke, 
then I think we have our answer. So it's Jesus himself saying, oh, by the way, I'm in the wilderness, and Satan kept banging away at me, saying, do this, do that, and, you know, <laughs> and I kept telling him, get the heck out of here, and <laughs> quoting scripture to chase him away. Now, when he's before Pilate, it's not correct to say he's alone. There would have been people there. And and this is part of a debate I actually had with Crossan. It was always that, well, when Jesus was before Caiaphas, you know, and Caiaphas asked him a question, and Jesus said, yes, I am the Messiah, and you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand, coming to the clouds of heaven. Who was there to say, well, dozens of people, dozens of people heard Jesus say mm-hmm. that. And people talk. They talked back then as they do now. The people uh, hearing Jesus say that would... You don't have to have the 12 disciples there in order for the story to be preserved. And so when Jesus is interrogated by Caiaphas and company and claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who will come as Son of Man at the right hand, uh, that, that, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody in Jerusalem by the end of the week who did not know that. And when Jesus is standing before uh, Pontius Pilate, and he's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you say I am. Or he asks him, what is truth? How can we be surprised at all that this becomes known? People are standing there who who are on Pilate's side. There are people there who are sympathetic to Jesus. There are people there who are servants who are neutral. Everybody in town is going to hear about this famous Jesus and how he was interrogated, and they asked him this, and he said that. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. We need not think, well, the 12 disciples had to be there, Matthew taking notes. It isn't necessary to argue that at all. Wow, that, and you'd have to think also in the, in the, in the days uh, after Easter, they might have asked Jesus about that. Hey, what, what did you and Pilate talk about? Anyways, but hey, Dr. Evans, it's been so great having you on uh, once again. And thank you for that great question, Frank. Really appreciate you. You can get a hold of Dr. Evans. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Craig A. Evans, at Dr. Craig A. Evans. And his website is craigaevans.com. You can learn more about his excellent books and his research. We'll have to have you back. There's so much we didn't get to, but Dr. Evans, again, happy Easter. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Jim Shaper produced today. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.